Would you pray with me again? Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics now, and Lord, Seekers Sunday Sermon. The meditations of all of our hearts. This is 4S. In your I'm David Johnson. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's get started. Amen. My final year of sem seminary, I interviewed with a number of churches in search of a first call to ministry. Before we get into his story of his interview to his first call to ministry, I just want to say that this sermon is a bit of a follow-up to what we have been studying over at Red Letters. You can join in the discussion, which has been great. We've had some great shows. We had a, a fabulous uh, show with a couple of guests uh, this past week, and it was one of the best. I really enjoyed it, and I think the audience is going to really enjoy it too. You can enjoy that show and more, all of what we have to offer, at patreon.com slash redletters. You'll also pick up my free book, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Practical and Moral Teachings in History. All right, this sermon is is own family, in particular family values, but it's a very different take. I believe it's Presbyterian this week. And uh, I thought that you might enjoy a sermon that I enjoy. In fact, it's the type of sermon that I could preach today. I enjoyed pretty much everything about this sermon, including its length, which is pretty short. It's about 23 minutes. If I could just let it play without saying anything, I think I would do that. But there are probably some legal reasons why you shouldn't do that, and so I need to make a comment every now and then for value add. But I will try to keep those comments very brief, because this sermon doesn't need added value. It will be a joy to your day, I think, no matter what persuasion you happen to be. Of course, there is the Christianese to wade through. I might point out some of that, but replace some of the Christianese with secularese, and I think it's a sermon that we could all get behind. Let's see what this preacher has to say about family values. There's one conversation among them I'll never forget. In that particular congregation's church information form, they stated that the greatest challenges facing the church and society were drug and alcohol addiction, a lack of male role models, and the decline of biblical family values. While I understood their point, this did give me pause because in many ways, I was a product of all three of those. My father battled alcoholism throughout his life. My parents divorced when I was 14. He died when I was 15. And the church was not really a formative part of my childhood. In my phone interview, I asked the PNC chair a question about that statement. Can I ask, where in the Bible do you find these family values? Well, there was a silence on the other end of the line. And then he said, do you not believe in biblical family values? 
And I responded, well, I certainly may. I'm just interested in where they are in the Bible. Where do you get them from? Do you get them from the Ephesians household codes or maybe from the Levitical code? I'm just wondering where you find them. Then I can tell you if I believe in them or not. Now, he was very patient with me. (laughs) He politely asked, what's your point, Joe? (laughs) And I said, in a way that only a raw seminary graduate filled filled with uh, you-know-what could say, over the past three years of seminary, I've read the scriptures pretty carefully. It seems to me that every family in the Bible is really screwed up. (laughs) Look at Adam and Eve. They have Cain and Abel, and Cain wax Abel. And then there's Noah and his family. Noah is supposedly the only righteous guy on the planet. But what's the first thing he does when he gets off his ark? He plants a vineyard, makes wine, and gets so drunk that he passes out in his birthday suit. And then his son Ham comes and makes fun of him. So when Noah comes to, he condemns Ham and his descendants to generations of slavery. That's pretty messed up. Then there's Abraham and Sarah. Abraham passes Sarah off to Pharaoh and Abimelech as his sister to save his own skin. Then there's that whole affair with Hagar and the whole Ishmael incident, not to mention the binding of Isaac. That sounds like child abuse to me. This is all very disturbing. And we're only halfway through Genesis. If you go to the New Testament, Jesus says things like, if you don't hate your father and mother, brother and sisters, wife and children, you cannot be my disciple. Are these biblical family values? Well, he patiently asked again, so what's your point, Joe? (laughs) And I said, well, all these screwed up families, they make my family look pretty normal, which is remarkable because my family put the fun in dysfunction. (laughs) Yet it's through all these broken families that God works to redeem the world. And if God can use broken folks like them, maybe God could use a broken person like me. Isn't that amazing? Then a stunning thing happened. He said to me, Joe, I'm divorced, but I consider my divorce sin. And I said, you're a walking example of what we're talking about. You suffered through the pain of a divorce, a pain that was no doubt born in some measure of sin. And yet, your congregation elected you to chair the pastor nominating committee. That's amazing. The interview ended amicably, thank God. Needless to say, they went their direction and I went mine. But I'll never forget that conversation. Jacob and Esau could have been included in my diatribe of broken families of the Bible. Talk about a sibling rivalry. These twin brothers were battling from the womb. They came into this world fighting with Jacob holding on to Esau's heel. They were oil and water. Esau was a man's man, hairy, a hunter, had a hipster beard, I'm sure. He was an outdoorsman. And Jacob, he was a mama's boy. 
spent most of his time in the kitchen. Esau was the brawn. Jacob, the brain. He conned Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then there is today's sordid story. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. Rebecca orchestrates Jacob's theft of Isaac's blessing from Esau. This story drips with deceit. We wanted to do it in a narrative way so you could really feel the pain of it. There is nothing redeeming about Genesis 27. And it ends with Esau pledging, I will kill my brother Jacob. How's that for family values? Well, truth be told, Jacob and Esau carry on a family tradition of the Bible, a tradition of enmity and strife between brothers. Their biblical rivalry is an origin story for the animosity between Israel and Edom, the kingdom to the south of Judah, The tensions of scripture, in truth, reflect the tensions of our world, too often defined by enmity and strife. The Bible is really honest about who we are. And this enmity and strife is born of wrongs done recently, or centuries ago, or perhaps wrongs done today that open the wounds of the past. Our nation is certainly torn by division these days. Last weekend's violence in Charlottesville has been eclipsed now by how people are responding to that violence. Are white nationalists and neo-Nazis being condemned enough? Or are we providing a stage for them that they do not deserve? Our leaders are saying ridiculous things One politician in Missouri expressed her hope that our president would be assassinated. That is beyond incendiary, it is insane. Is media blowing chosen events and statements out of proportion to serve their own political agendas? The tension is thicker than the humidity in the air. And they are the latest bitter fruit of the culture wars that divide us. In recent years, these tensions have impacted our church in painful ways. The flashpoint of this conflict was the debate over whether we would host wedding services here for same-gender couples. That decision was made in September of 2015, but the tensions run deeper than any single issue. I just want to uh, take a moment and pause there. Uh, The last church that I was involved with uh, in a in a serious way that was often considered the last mile issue. It's it's the last hill to die on. They were so liberal in so many ways. They were so accepting, so warm, so loving, perhaps the best church experience I have ever had in my life. But on this issue, 
But on this issue, they hung. I am still amazed at how much oxygen is taken up by the issue of who loves whom. At its heart is a conflict about identity. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of my family's introduction to Myers Park Presbyterian. We were here August 21st, a year ago. Over the course of this past year, I've had many conversations with people who feel disaffected, disconnected from the life of the church, perhaps wondering if there is a place for them here. People who identify with conservative values worry that the church they love, in which they have invested so much time and energy and resources, has become liberal. And in some conversations I've had, people who identify with liberal values, as the world describes them, were stunned to hear sentiments expressed that they did not know people in our congregation held. At the heart of this tension are labels produced by the culture wars. The culture wars seek to divide us by labeling us through flashpoint issues, reducing us to a word, liberal or conservative, reducing a state to a color, red state, blue state, Of course, such labels are a lie. No one can be that simplistically described, and no state is red or blue. Every state is some shade of purple. North Carolina is a very purple state, and for that matter, every person is some shade of purple. Now, Sean Hannity is no doubt magenta, And Rachel Maddow, she's pretty indigo, I would say. (laughs) But even they are shades of purple. And so are we. Our church is certainly as purple as this community. Thanks be to God. And I would say the same is true of the SNS and Red Letters community. That is a good thing. Something to be treasured. Because it is increasingly rare in this world for people of differing views to gather together in community. This is desperately needed right now in our world. Throughout my ministry, some of my closest friendships have been with church members who are a very different shade of purple from me. In my first interview with my former congregation, At the close of the conversation that had gone quite well, I thought I had a chance for the job, a woman on the committee asked me a very direct question about a flashpoint issue of the day. And I offered her a very direct response. We held different convictions on that issue, and no doubt many more. She said, I could not call someone to this church who would split this church. And I said, I would not want you to call somebody who would split this church. And if me believing that would split your church, don't call me. For the next 45 minutes, 
the committee engaged with each other in a debate about that issue. It was evident they had never talked about it with each other. They had a wide set of opinions about it. And it was a blessing for me to see the way they talked about it. It was evident that their opinions would not split them. And in the 10 years I served that congregation, they all played critical roles in the church. And the congregation did not split. The woman who asked me that question became one of my closest friends. Her family changed my daughter's life, making it possible for Kate to attend a school that enabled her to overcome her learning differences and reach her fullest potential. I officiated her grandson's weddings. I baptized her great-grandchildren. And when the time came for her to enter the church triumphant, I preached her funeral bawling like a baby afterwards. No disagreement over any issue facing the church could ever separate us from loving each other. Our mutual love for Christ overcame any difference of opinion we had on earthly matters. As the church of Jesus Christ We cannot let labels of the culture define us. Every label of the world is inadequate and is penultimate to our identity as children of God and the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ who has claimed us all as his very own. Righteousness is not simply a conservative value, it is a standard raised by God's word. Renouncing racism, hatred, and bigotry is not a political statement, it is a Christian proclamation, a truth of the gospel. Actually, I think it's also a human imperative. Embracing diversity and inclusion, that's not about political correctness. It reflects the ever-expanding love of God embodied in the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, it's a social imperative. Now, some of us may emphasize one of these values over others, righteousness over reconciliation, or reconciliation over righteousness, And this may lead to debate, but that's nothing new for the church. It's been present since the very beginning. Half of the New Testament is a debate over the terms of inclusion for Gentiles in the life of the church. And James and Paul, they never agreed on that. Paul ultimately prevailed. Thank God, if he hadn't, none of us would probably be here. But James is still part of the canon. Such conflict, well, it's part of being the church. It's not unlike these sibling squabbles of scripture, but it must never ultimately define the church. What defines the church? You are the light of the world, says our Lord. And in this dark moment, friends, we must shine. You 
are the body of Christ, says the Apostle Paul. And in a divided nation, we must stand together as a witness to God's love in Christ for all people, no matter their race, their creed, or political identity. And when hatred rears its ugly head to intimidate others through fear, we live out love. Perfect love casts out fear, says John. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters deceive themselves. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So he says in 1 John 4, and then he continues, for God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them, all of them. That's not a political agenda. That is God's agenda. And such love begins right here in loving one another despite our differences. And such love calls us out there to embody God's love in a world being torn asunder. So where do we go from here? What do we do? Well, believe it or not, Jacob and Esau have something to teach us in this regard. Where did they go? What did they do? Well, if you kept reading the story, you'll learn that Jacob fled for his life from Esau after Esau issued that fatwa, the murder indictment. He went to Haran, to the land of his ancestors, to his uncle Laban, and there he got married. He started his own family. He built his own wealth through less than righteous means, we must say. He changed his name to Israel. It was not part of a witness protection program. It was more because he strived with God and he survived. He would father 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God told him to go home. In Genesis 32, we learn that Esau hears that Jacob is coming home, and he comes to meet Jacob, bringing 400 men with him. Jacob assumes Esau is coming to kill him. And in fear, he sends flocks and herds ahead of himself to try to buy Esau off. But when Esau finally finds him, Genesis 33 tells us he runs to meet him, He hugs him, he falls on his neck, and he kisses him. Perfect love cast out all fear. And Jacob says to his brother, truly, to see your face is to see the face of God. Can we imagine seeing with such vision? Can we imagine seeing the face of God in the other? Whomever that other may be to you, can we imagine the grace of God seeing and shaping how we see one another? 
Can we imagine the will of God for brothers and sisters to be reconciled, shaping our relationships with one another? Jacob and Esau did. For that matter, as we've remembered this summer, so did Isaac and Ishmael before them. And so would Joseph and his brothers after them. Because that's what God's all about. Ultimately, that's what God does with us. For in Christ, we see the face of God. In Christ, God sees us all through the lens of grace. In Christ, we are called to see one another with new eyes. Let me conclude with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 19. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So Paul concludes, we are ambassadors for Christ. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Now that is a biblical family value. Okay, and that's where this sermon ends. There's a closing prayer that we don't need to hear. I really enjoyed this sermon, although some of the Christianese is a little bit thick, and some of the Christian ideas are a little bit hard to move past. For instance, we, we don't need a Christ, a Messiah, an anointed one to reconcile us to some other alien being that's not necessary. I find the most challenging thing about a sermon like this, though, to be the idea of fellowship. Fellowship is a very challenging thing, and acceptance of people who are not like you, acceptance of the other. You see, all fellowships are based on something. Sometimes the fellowship is based on work. You all do the same kind of work, or you all work for the same company. You know, there's, there's some overarching thing that creates and maintains the fellowship. Fellowship of family. Well, we all have the same DNA, all right? So to, to what degree that is meaningful uh, to people, that, that becomes fellowship. My commitment to family has little to do with DNA. You can listen to me hold forth more on that subject, but um, I do think family is important, not necessarily because of that. For some people, fellowship is based on 
country. You, you were born here, and that creates a type of fellowship, or you support this country. You are loyal to it. You are patriotic, or you support this team, or you are a part of this sports team. Fellowship, it has to be based on something, some unifying thing. So how is it possible to have fellowship without some unifying thing? And if you have some overarching thing that is important to you, and there is someone who violates that very principle, how is it possible for you to have fellowship with them? Well, you have to, you have to somehow change the thing that is important to you. Change the size and shape of the umbrella so that it includes that other. That's the only way for meaningful fellowship to be possible, kind of a social... Uh, an emotional, social gerrymandering. And I think that's easier said than done. And I think the problem for the Christian, the problem that they create is all of this becomes rhetoric for them. You know, they can read emotional stories from a book and say, you see, that's fellowship and God accepts us kumbaya. But that's not how the real world works. And we need real answers. It's kind of like being immersed in the Star Trek universe, which I am. But the problem with the Star Trek universe is it says, look, don't worry about how we overcame these problems. We overcame everything, and now we've got this utopia. But the real question is, what happens when we try to build that utopia? Well, the story skips some steps, and uh, so we don't really have a real template. It makes that utopia seem more like make-believe if there's no actual path to get there from where we are. And this idea of a universal fellowship feels like that kind of utopia where it's really more like fantasy if there's no actual path to get there from where we are. We need a clearer path. We need clearer explanations. We need clearer thought on this. We need more philosophical work to be done on this before we can get there. And I can tell you, as for my own limitations, I have a hard time feeling great fellowship with political conservatives. Now, I do feel great fellowship with some political conservatives. But then again, political liberalism is not my overarching principle. There are a lot of things that political conservatives believe that really pose a stumbling block for me. And it really puts an asterisk in those relationships. And I don't know how to have relationships without those asterisks. Uh, can I have fellowship with a white nationalist? I don't believe I can. Now, I might and just not know that they're white nationalists, but then again, they may not be very good white nationalists because they shouldn't, they shouldn't be able to have fellowship with me. Um, so could I do that? How do I cross that bridge? I don't have a path to do that. And so I don't feel like I am diminished in any way by not having that fellowship. I don't feel like I have failed my humanity by not having fellowship with a white nationalist. And so if, if that fellowship really is the goal, we need more clarity on how that's supposed to happen. 
And I think part of what has to happen is we have to be very, very careful about where we draw our lines in the sand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't draw lines in the sand. I believe that we should. But we need to be way more careful about when and where we do it. And let's try to draw lines that include as many people as possible and not exclude people unnecessarily. But at the end of the day, people will be excluded from the Christian's perspective. Enemies of God are ultimately their enemies Ultimately, oh, they may say, well, in this life, my battle isn't against flesh and blood, and I love you just as Christ loved you, but you're going to hell. <laughs> it, it ends up something like that. There is a line in the sand. There is an asterisk in that relationship. And I don't know how you cross that. If you're a conservative Christian, I have no advice for you. I think that's a hard line in the sand that you cannot cross. I crossed it by getting out of conservative Christianity. No more line in the sand drawn there. And so it allows me to bring in more people. Some people's line in the sand has to do with social righteousness. If you abort babies, you're a murderer, and I have no fellowship with murderers. Well, if that's how you feel, I don't know how to fix that line in the sand for you. I don't have any advice for that. I think I could have fellowship with you. I know that I could. But I don't know how you could have fellowship with me. You see, this, this idealistic, liberalish notion of fellowship with everyone all the time, no matter what, doesn't work in real humanity. And I, I know that I should, I should probably be um, pitching this type of fellowship, but I don't, I can't, because I find it unrealistic. I find that at the end of the day, there are people whose ideas about the world are so abhorrent and so dangerous that it puts a large asterisk between me and any fellowship that I could have with them. It diminishes the kind of fellowship we, we could have. And I don't think that the problem is mine. And even though I think the problem is theirs, I don't think they should change until their belief structure actually changes. And so this desire for fellowship may ultimately just be premature. What we really need to do is change hearts and minds about critical issues of the day, about epistemology, about the way, uh, the reality of, of how the world works, about any number of real things that matter. And maybe if we can do that, then we can look for that common ground, and maybe we will be able to more easily find it without the asterisks. So as much as I love a sermon like this and can get behind a sermon like this, it is a little bit like watching Star Trek and asking, yeah, but Gene, how do we actually get there? And is it realistic at the end of the day? Is this kind of fellowship, this kind of familyhood among all mankind, is this a realistic goal? Or is this just utopian fantasy? 
tell me in the comments. I'd love to know what you think. Bye-bye.